You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce our moderator, Terry Bisson. Terry! Cool. Um, I will, I'm not going to take up a lot of time because we have some very interesting authors tonight. And as you know, we, um, we read and we take a little break and then we kind of schmooze with um, our, our authors. So we want to uh, have a whole evening of that. I want to thank you all for coming again. This is our last of the year. I want to remind everybody to turn your cell phones on in case something really cool comes along. And um, I would, we actually have tonight one of the, she was talking about Toy Story 3. I think we have one of the authors of Toy Story 3. Is it 3 or 2? You wouldn't know it from the credits or IMDb. Yeah, well, I wrote uh, the second draft of uh, Toy Story 2. Uh, oh, it was no. 2. Okay. I'll probably get sued We couldn't by get the Toy Story that. 3 guy here, so this guy came instead. You probably have to have a bus. Uh, <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, just briefly, I'd like to say that here's a guy who made our theme tonight is a mystery, and we'll uh, see if people can discover what it is. But uh, this guy made a huge splash with a very unique um, twist on the standard SF trope of the post-Holocaust novel. The uh, everything changes, and then people manage to survive. This is well worth. Well-worked territory, but it got worked in a unique uh, way by the author, our first reader tonight. And let's leave it at that and just introduce Stephen Boyette. There's no way to do this quietly, so just bear with me. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for coming out on a Saturday night. And thanks, uh, Rena and Terry, for holding this event. which is easily going to be the best venue I'm ever going to read in. Um, even if there's a bigger one, I doubt there's going to be a better one. This is a wonderful facility. So uh, thank you all so much. This is, this is an awful lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to read two short pieces. Um, one is, I don't know why I'm getting feedback. I'm way the hell over here. I'm going to read uh, uh, a short piece from uh, Elegy Beach, which is the wholly unexpected sequel to my novel, Ariel, unexpected to my publisher, to the people who read it, and even to me, because I never really intended to write it. (laughs) Um, This is uh, the third mercifully brief chapter. People who remember the change are different. There's something in their eyes, the things they had to witness or to endure or to commit just to stay alive. For each of them, a day had come when everything they knew about the world and how it worked was suddenly horribly wrong, and there was no going back. They tend to look hard and lined and worn. They share a tacit misery. You feel it when they get together, which they don't do very often, unlike my generation who pile on each other like blind bunnies, as my father once complained. And that it was a complaint was telling. Recoverable tragedies can knit communities tighter. I've seen it happen after earthquakes, storm floods, fires. But the change was irrevocable as far as they knew. 
and its first citizens had wandered its still and depopulate realm like wraiths. But however they handled the memory of that lost world, mourning it, forsaking it, grieving and then coping, the awful meridian of that transmuting day and its ensuing chaos still abided in their eyes. Apparently my father had it pretty rough when the change occurred. He didn't talk about it much. He didn't talk about anything much. But I pieced some things together over the years. He'd lived on the East Coast. He'd been younger than I am when it happened. He'd lost his mother, his brother, his friends. Not uncommon for those days. He had wandered. He was attacked, beaten, robbed. He had fought to stay alive and even killed. He had come out west. I don't know why he thought California would be any different. People still jacked each other for food or for squats or for no reason at all out here. Animals that had escaped from the zoos had bred and adapted and hunted in packs. Supernatural creatures had appeared and created chaos. I don't think my father had been alone when he'd first set out. Whoever she was, it hadn't lasted, and big surprise here, he didn't like to talk about it. It took him over a year to reach the West Coast. He avoided cities and people. How he managed to meet my mother is anybody's guess, but meet they did, and I was a result. And a few years after that, she got sick and died. I don't, I have memories that I think might be her, but I'm not really sure. I hope they are. My father told me that uh, after he met my mom, he took up farming, but it didn't really take. I remember a little fenced yard of chickens. They were stupid and dirty, and the rooster was scary and mean. One of my earliest clear memories was of looking up at a cow towering down over me while my father squatted behind, uh, beside it, milking, or trying to milk it. For all my father knew about cows, it was a bull, and he was really just making it happy. <laughs> he told me that he'd left farming because it wasn't good for me to grow up in isolation. Maybe so, but I also think that he was lonely, something he never would have admitted even if he'd realized it. In any case, he'd turned the livestock free and put me in a super deluxe baby stroller and he'd headed out for the coast. He told me he'd rather put a fish hook in the water than put seeds in the ground and step back and wait six months. <laughs> beach communities had formed and thrived. Who doesn't want to live on the beach? We squatted a small house with a small yard in Del Mar, about a mile inland, and my father fixed it up. He said he didn't really want to live on the beach. For years I assumed that he was talking about repairs and maintenance, but after Dr. Ram told me what happened to the Hendricks, I wondered if my father wasn't worried about that as well. So I grew up in the ocean community of Del Mar, warm and pleasant and easy and beautiful, sheltered. The northern boundary of my childhood forays was delimited by the canted, rusting wreck of a supertanker careened on Carlsbad Beach in Encinitas decades ago. It was the drowned corpse of some foundered god. When I was 10, me and a bunch of other kids went exploring in it, despite being strictly forbidden to, or maybe because of that. 
Inside was a cramped, dark, slanting metal maze, above a man-made grotto, slick with algae, rank with, uh, with water, dank with oil, and inhabited. Squatters lived in its tilted upper decks, skinny Asians in ragged clothes, fishing off the sides, and for all we knew, eating kids too stupid to keep out. We saw them and we fled screaming and laughing. They cursed at us in some cat-like language and they threw things as we splashed into the water and slogged ashore. Jan said that they were the, uh, the ship's original crew or descended from them. I never went back there, but its iron corpse loomed throughout my childhood like a haunted house. The way the concrete vastness of the Del Mar racetrack dominated it like a storybook castle. Our lives were dominated by the ocean, by the shore. Strange things wash the shore sometimes. Giant nets and thick cables, countless plastic bottles and salt-polished wood, bottle glass and airline seat cushions, rusting drums of industrial chemicals, carcasses of sea serpents, once a rotting man-sized mass that some people claimed was a mermaid, though I never saw it and can't say either way. Summers were social and soft and easy. In June, families would pack picnic backpacks and head up to Seagrove Park to watch the sea serpents mating, huge as railroad tunnels and equally improbable out there on the bright crumpled water. They had uh, their scales gleamed strawberry red, tinged with vibrant yellow, and they fanned their parasol gills, dead man's eyes and built-in leers, giving them goofy expressions of permanent fang delight. A quarter mile offshore, the males would rear and hiss and bite each other, churning the water and getting knotted as a ball of rubber bands, and then sorting themselves out and going at it all again. Some of the older adults were uncomfortable with us kids watching because sea serpents were big and scary and new. They hadn't even existed when our parents were kids. And they were having sex, after all, though how you could tell in all that thrashing, I don't know. One time, my father told me that sea serpents were clearly related to dragons. And Mr. Benauer, who ran the Stop On Inn, really just a bar that he ran out of what was left of the Loberge Hotel, asked him, how the hell do you know? And my father said, because I killed one once. And that shut him the hell up. I don't think he believed him, and maybe he shouldn't have. Sometimes dad just wanted people to shut the hell up. <laughs> After mating season, there was usually a corpse or two washed ashore. That was bad. You couldn't eat the meat. It wasn't poisonous. It just tasted awful. So the corpses would just lie there, festering and swelling and attracting clouds of birds and flies. They were too big to move, and sometimes they bloated up until they popped like some big monstrous zit, and they'd send rotting meat and guts flying 50 feet in all directions. But at least after they popped, you could get rid of most of the corpse. Sometimes they just kind of deflated. The smell was unbelievable. I mean, you could smell it half a mile away. They rotted fast after that, but most Julys, I was pretty glad I didn't live near the beach. Despite this, a lot of adults and the older kids would go surfing, which I thought of as a beautiful but complicated form of suicide. Why not just tie a rope to a big hook and put it through yourself? 
winters were gray whale migrations, hundreds of them, ancient and unknowable, swimming out there off the coast. My father said they'd almost all died out before the change, killed off by hunters, by getting tangled in discarded fishing nets, by industrial chemicals in the water, and by military experiments with underwater sound for some unfathomable reason. All of this was hard to imagine, especially when you saw those dark encrusted backs break surface and spout, little geysers on tiny islands. Mr. Benauer once said, they look like submarines. And I asked, what's a submarine? <laughs> and the look he gave my father was a combination of pity and contempt that us kids had seen so many times we didn't really even see it anymore. It said, you haven't been teaching him. My father had nodded toward the whales and said to me, but so Mr. Benauer could hear, subs were big warships, Fred. They moved underwater and they carried people and weapons. They're still out there too, the Titanic wreck. There's still satellites up there looking down at us and up at the stars. There's a space station, Pioneer 10, Voyager, Hubble, Mars rovers, Saturn probes, who knows what else. All those TV shows still spreading out there in the stars. I'll bet the Mona Lisa somewhere is covered with fungus. Well, Ben hours left soon after that. So did a few others. My dad, the buzzkill. One December, when I was seven years old, we were up at Seagrove with some other families, wrapped against the cold and eating smushed chunks of Mrs. Halibagian's flatbread, smeared with Mr. Fael's uh, uh, honey. We were leaning into erratic gusts of chilly offshore breeze. Dad wore his sword, of course. Older people found it hard to leave uh, the house unarmed. Someone had got hold of a baby salamander. And us kids were chasing it around, and we shrieked when it shocked our hands, trying to burn us with a force that uh, it would not possess until it reached adulthood. The salamander was hard to hold on to slippery and elusive and not quite really there, it seemed, and it moved in small, quick, random hops that sent us bounding after it and often crashing into each other. The adults watched us in much the same way they looked at the sea serpents or the whales, like we were aliens. Well, we were. We had grown up on a different world. I'd been catching my breath between rounds while the salamander regenerated, changing colors in the grass. Out on the dark ocean, a whale surged up between its fellow travelers and slapped down hard on the water. The splash was enormous. The whale sank slowly until its tail flukes upended. Dad, look, I yelled. It's doing a headstand. So I see. I tried to do a headstand and kick my feet like tail flukes, and I fell over. Whales are cool. Whales are way cool. They did me a big favor once. They help you kill that dragon? Mr. Benauer asked, and a couple of the grown-ups turned away, so my father couldn't see him trying not to laugh. Dragon was already dead, my father said. I sat up in the grass and looked at him, certain he was pulling my leg. He liked to deadpan ridiculous statements, and he was very good at it. But whatever I was going to ask or say was lost in my startlement. Mr. Benauer looked away in sudden, awkward embarrassment, and my father's eyes were bright with held-back tears. 
And then the salamander regenerated and turned yellow-white again, and Casey Yu got hold of it and yelped when it shocked him. He wrung his hand, and the salamander squirmed loose and jumped my way, and we were off again. I got too close to the cliff edge, and my father yelled at me. And I forgot about quails and bounding after baby salamanders and favors for a decade until I wrote this down just now. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.